Father, we open now our ears and our hearts to you, and we pray that you would incline us to your ways. Lord, it's easy for us to just mindlessly live our lives, to coast spiritually, uh, but you have so much more for us if we would listen, heed, and obey your word. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that you would use this time uh, to be more than just me up here speaking, but that would be the Holy Spirit uh, speaking in and through the word uh, to each and every person here in the way that they need to hear. So have your way in us, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, saw that the scripture reading was real quick, and our passage this morning is all of two verses. Now, you may not realize it, but this is perhaps the most important part of this section in Romans, where we've been learning about our sanctification, growing in righteousness in our lives. Everything that we've been talking about the last few months, starting from Romans 6. So just to refresh your memory, we've talked about how we are now dead to sin and alive to God. We are now slaves of righteousness, not of sin. We talked about how we have been set free from a hopeless marriage to the law that only condemned us. And now we are married to Christ, a spouse by whose grace we can now bear fruit for God. And if you're here last Sunday, we talked about the kind of lifestyle that enables us to even begin to deal with sin, the lifestyle of spirit-mindedness, spirit with a capital S, where we are set, our minds are set on the things of the Spirit, on the things that please God. Now, all these truths that talk about our status, about our identity in Christ, if you think about it, they are all foundational and preparatory. But today is the crux of the matter. These verses are where the rubber meets the road. And they address head-on this question of how are you going to battle and overcome sin in your life? We haven't yet, all these weeks, talking about sanctification, we haven't hit this question head-on. We're going to do that today. How do you battle? How do you fight against? How do you overcome your sin in your life? There's no more important question issue than that. We're going to zero in on verse 13. Let me read it for us again. Verse 13 says this, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now lest you think this is just another verse, just kind of pass by it. In preparing for this message, I was reading from uh, a book by uh, John Owen. He's a 17th century Puritan theologian. He's had a profound impact upon my theology, my life. And in his book called 
of the mortification of sin in believers. This is the kind of titles they used back then, right? It's about a hundred or so pages unpacking just this one verse. So you see how important this verse is. There's so much in this verse for us. It's central for us. And he strikingly summarizes this verse by this memorable phrase that you see up there. So if you remember nothing else from this morning's message, remember this phrase, because this, what this is what's at stake. Is that you are one who is killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's the only two options. There's no neutral ground. There's no third way. Either you are one who is killing sin in your life, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Now, from our text, I want to draw out two things uh, this morning. A simple outline for us. First, why you must kill sin. And then secondly, we'll look at how you must kill sin. And we're going to spend most of our time on the how question and get as practical as possible. And so first, let's briefly see why you must kill sin according to the passage. I'm going to give two reasons uh, that I think we see in this passage why you must kill sin. First, a life of mortifying, and this is just a, a fancy, archaic word, getting at putting to death. A life of putting to death your sin is the evidence that you are saved and have eternal life. Now, in verse 13, notice the conditional language there. He said that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's conditional. Now, when you think about it, maybe the question arises in your mind, isn't that contradictory to the gospel of grace? Isn't that at odds with all that we've been talking about over and over again? Salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, not by works. Doesn't this verse suggest that for you to inherit life, eternal life, you need to be putting to death your sin. So how does that square with the gospel? How does that square with Romans 6.23 that says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? Well, if you think through it, it's not that hard to put together. It's this. If you have received salvation through the gospel with genuine faith, you will inevitably be someone who is putting to death the sins in your life. That's how it fits together. The grace of God that you have received becomes powerfully operative in your life for sanctification. That means that this life of mortifying sin is the evidence, not the basis. Let's make that clear. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, not by works. But this life is the evidence that you are saved through the gospel. You know, the verse before, in verse 12, Paul is reminding believers of their identity. He's saying, you are no longer a debtor to sin, to the flesh. You are now in the Spirit. 
in the grasp of the Spirit. You are no longer in the flesh, so you don't owe sin anything anymore. You don't owe sin any of your affection or your allegiance. So, are you demonstrating the reality of your salvation by the life that you're living? That's why Paul can say, if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, your sinful body in your life, you show yourself to be a person who has eternal life. That's the first reason. Secondly, unmortified sin leads to all kinds of spiritual disorders, even spiritual ruin. Living according to the flesh doesn't just lead to eternal death eventually. It leads to the slow but sure killing of your soul in the here and now. Our indwelling sin, as we've talked about in previous messages, does not stand still. It's a fierce, formidable, shrewd enemy that we're dealing with. Let me read an excerpt by John Owen, who I just referenced. And this way he says, it says, sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if let alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sin. You know what it did in David, King David, and sundry others, various others. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. Every rise of lust, might it have its course, would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. This description of our enemy should, should make us shudder. And should make us realize that arson is not something to be trifled with. Again, you be dealing with this, you be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And one of the most heartbreaking things as a pastor over the years is seeing precisely indwelling sin cause people to drift farther and farther away from God without them even fully realizing it until it comes to a point where they completely leave God altogether, never to return. And so we need to soberly heed this warning and work out our salvation that we've received because of what we're dealing with. So that's the why. Let's move now to the how. The very crucial matter of how do you do verse 13? We're going to camp out here and spend the rest of our time in this as there's layers to unpack First, let me clarify what it means in verse 13 that we are to put to death the deeds of the sinful body. 
Because we've been told that our indwelling sin is an enemy that we're going to face and fight against the rest of our days. We will not experience full victory. We will not fully conquer our sin in this lifetime. Only when we meet Jesus face to face will we see sin completely lie dead at our feet. So what are we to realistically aim at in putting sin to death in our lives? Well, what Paul is getting at is that we are to see our sin habitually weakened to the point where we render it ineffective in our lives. Now, there are some sins that are largely mortified right now in your life by God's grace. For example, some of us, um, we don't struggle, and just because you're um, this doesn't mean you're better than others, but some of us don't struggle at all with a dependency on alcohol or addiction to drugs, substances. That's not your fight. Now, that doesn't mean that you've completely overcome that, that issue, that sin once and for all, and that it can never rear its head in your life. You know, um, don't be proud lest you fall, Scripture warns us, with any sin. But for many of us, that particular struggle is largely rendered ineffective. Now, I want you to think about the sins that you struggle with on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. For some of us, it's anxiety, where you are continually racked with worry, even panic about the future, about what will happen, about situations, and your heart is never at peace, at rest. Or for some of us, or let me just say all of us, we all have issues with anger to some degree. Whether you express it outwardly as a volcano or not, we all struggle with anger, impatience, unkindness, irritability. Lust. Now these habitual besetting sins, imagine you weakening those sins to the point of rendering them ineffective in your life. Sounds humanly impossible, does it not? Well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that's why the second half of verse 13 gives us the method by which we put to death the sins in our lives. What does it say? What's the key phrase in verse 13? It's, if by the Spirit... So you don't just go out there on your own trying to overcome your sin. It's, you got to do it by the Spirit. That's the only way you'll be successful. All of us at one point or another have tried to deal with, fight against, overcome sin in our lives just in our own strength. Depending on our own devices, in our own ability. And that's not going to work. It reminds me of this, the D.A.R.E. program. Now, how many of us remember this program? How many of us went through this growing up? Most of us, actually. D.A.R.E., meaning Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Now, in elementary school, I went through this D.A.R.E. program. We had police officers come into our classroom, and 
um, they were trying to teach us, persuade us, convince us not to do drugs, not to drink alcohol underage. And their method of having us resist is in their slogan. What's their slogan? Just say no. Just say no to drugs, right? So that, the police officer that came in, that's all that they would basically say for that hour, over and over again in different ways. You know, when someone offers you drugs, just say no and walk away. And then they would have us pair up with one another and act out scenarios where the one person would be the drug dealer, you know, <laughs> offering marijuana, and then the other person has to practice, no, I don't want to do that, and walk away. And then they would bombard us with all kinds of dare paraphernalia, dare t-shirts, and uh, dare bumper stickers, dare stickers to put all over our folders, indoctrinating us with this message. Well, you know what? Many scientific studies have been done over the years, including at one point the Surgeon General of the United States that have declared that dare, despite all the millions of dollars spent on this program nationwide, has been pretty much ineffective in preventing drug abuse, alcohol abuse by minors. In fact, some studies have even argued that DARE has been counterproductive, that, that those who've gone through the program were more likely to do drugs and drink alcohol than those who did not. And that should remind us of Romans 7. Remember when we talked about the law? The law of God. What did the law do? It riles up the rebel side within us that when we're told not to do something, what do we do? We're inclined to do it. So that's Romans 7 illustrated right there. Right? So in our own strength, we don't have the ability. Our sheer willpower is not enough to say no to sin. That's so enticing. It's like the D.A.R.E. program. So what do we need? We need a power. We need to look to a power far greater than ourselves. Nothing less than the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells now in us who believe. It's only by the Spirit that we can put to death the sins in our lives. Now, to give you a picture, and hopefully this will stay with you, this always helps me out to remember, it's the difference between sailing versus rowing a boat. Now, let's say you, you're given the task to travel around the world by sea. That's kind of what trying to grow in righteousness, trying to pursue God's holiness feels like, right? Going up against the waves, going against the grain. Well, let's say you were given that task, and these were the only two options you were given, a rowboat or a sailboat. Now, all of us, at some point, have tried to deal with our sin, fight against our sin, just by sheer willpower, rowing a boat. I'm going to overcome this thing. I'm going to stop being so angry. I'm going to stop worrying and just trying to row. And you realize how futile that is, going up against the fiercest ocean waves and storms. You get tired very quickly and quit. No, what works far better? It's sailing. What's sailing? Sailing is you hoisting sails so that what? By those sails, 
you catch a power far greater than yourself. The power of the winds to move you in the direction that you need to go and get to your destination. So sanctification, growing in righteousness, successfully happens by sailing, not rowing. Now when you hear this image of sailing, you change by sailing. It's an inviting image, isn't it? Yes, God, you know what? I've tried. I'm tired. I know I can't do it on my own. I'm going to sail. I'm just going to put up my sails. I'm going to just let you take me away, God. Spirit of God, fall on me. Spirit of God, fill me. Take me away. All those words that we sing in those songs, right? And you know what? That image of sailing can take you to a different dangerous extreme. Because it can easily lead to a very passive mindset. A very passive posture where you're just waiting on God to do something for you. Just you sitting there praying, oh, Spirit of God, do something in me. Waiting for some magical spiritual experience to happen. To enable you to change. And that is what many of us swing to from extreme to extreme. When I was a young believer, that was a pendulum that I experienced over and over again. I would get excited, eager, convicted by a message or something. I'm going to fight against my sin. I'm going to overcome my sin. I'm going to try it. And I would try to do it on my own strength, rowing. I realized very quickly that didn't work. I got tired. And so I swung to the other extreme. I'm like, you know what, God, I can't do it, so I'm just going to depend on you. I'm just going to wait on you to do something. And you know what? The, there's a phrase that's used often amongst Christians that captures that kind of mindset, and that's let go and let God. Maybe you've used that at one point or another. Let go and let God. But you know what? That's not how we move forward in holiness. It's not 100% God, 0% us. It's not even 50-50 where God's like, you know what? Come halfway and I'll help you the rest. No, the math of sanctification is that it is 100% God. We are completely dependent upon him. Apart from him, we can't do anything. That's why it's by the Spirit, and yet it's at the same time 100% us involved engaged. Let me just show you two, ver- uh, two passages from the New Testament that talk about us growing in righteousness. Second Peter 1. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and all the fruits of righteousness that we're supposed to grow in. Make every effort. You Does that sound like let go and let God? Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he likens sanctification to an Olympic race, Olympic athletes competing. And says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. The NIV version puts it, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Again, doesn't it sound like let go and let God to you? Or just passively sailing, Titanic style, I'm the king of the world, just waiting for something to happen? No. You know what's a better motto to think about all this? It's not let go and let God. It's hold fast. You see that phrase in the New Testament. Hold fast and let God. Hold fast to God. Hold fast to the word of truth. Or, from 2 Peter 1, make every effort. You, that's 100% you, make every effort to let God. 100% God. See that? You know, sadly, any language of effort and discipline and self-denial I think it's largely fallen by the wayside in the church today. And that's why we don't see mature believers, I think, in the way that we are to. Because this emphasis on God's grace, the gospel, which is a good thing to keep central, people see it at odds with make every effort to pursue righteousness. You know, for some, any talk of effort, discipline in the Christian life immediately smacks of legalism. Oh, that's just being legalistic. That's not living in grace. That's not living in the gospel. But again, that's not the Bible's teaching. So if that's your mindset, that if you're called to fight, to have discipline, Beat your body, make it your slave. Don't just say, oh, that's at odds with the gospel. Kenneth Birding, he's a New Testament scholar, he puts it like this, and he strikes the balance very well. He says, obedience and trust. Action and acquiescence, surrender. Activity and spiritual enabling. Putting to death the deeds of the body and being empowered by the spirit to do it. It is not one or the other. Trust undergirds obedience, and obedience enlivens trust. It seems that the hang-up for many people is the thought that if they are actively battling sin, then they cannot possibly be trusting in the Spirit. They think that if they are striving hard, then they must be working in their own strength rather than in the strength of the Spirit. I cannot emphasize enough how incorrect such thinking is. Sure, it is possible to do lots of activity, even fighting against sin in one's own strength and without a dependence upon the Holy Spirit, but this does not mean that we are to be passive. Rather, we are by the Spirit to render the deeds of the body ineffective and not give the devil any sort of foothold in our lives. Now, to go back to the image of sailing, there's this famous race called the America's Cup. That happens every so often. I don't know if you've ever seen this. And you see what competitive sailing entails. Do you realize it takes tremendous effort to hoist up sails and to position them in the right way to maximize your speed and for these competitors to win their race? 
It takes a team of people, actually. It's anything but passive, just sitting there, catching the wind. And in this metaphor, you know what the sails are? You know what are the sails that we hoist up? It's the spiritual disciplines that we're to practice, even on a daily basis. Being in the Word, meditating on the Word, letting the Word dwell within you, saturating you, praying, fellowshipping with God in prayer, fasting, which is a largely neglected discipline, community, intimate relationships with one another where we're transparent, honest about our sin, our struggles, where we help each other, keep each other accountable. These are all spiritual disciplines by which the Spirit works in your life. And perhaps some of us have the wrong idea of these spiritual practices where we're just kind of doing them once in a while as checking off our spiritual to-do list as if just doing them, you know, rotely in of itself does anything. No. If you genuinely engage in those practices with the view of that's positioning your sails in the right way so that you can catch the power of the Spirit in your life, so that the Spirit moves you in the way of holiness. That's how God works in promoting holiness in you. And Colossians 1.29 captures this balance beautifully. And Paul says, For this I toil, it's him, no one else but him. I toil, 100% him. But how? Struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. 100% you, 100% God. Now let's dig even deeper. This all sounds great, but how does this active Every effort dependence upon the Spirit, how does that actually lead to greater righteousness in our lives? How does the Spirit work through these spiritual disciplines, hoisting up our sails, positioning them in the right way? How does the Spirit actually weaken sin in our life and cultivate righteousness? How does that happen? For this, I want to bring in another passage that corresponds well with Romans 8. 12 to 13, and that's Galatians chapter 5, 16 to 24. And some of us are familiar with this passage because this is the passage that talks about growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Now this passage actually is pretty much getting at the same thing as Romans 8, 13, just using different language. So let me read for you uh, verses 16 to 17 real quick. It says, but I say walk by the Spirit. So you see that same phrase again. Walk by the Spirit. And if you do that, look at the promise that's given to you. An amazing promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now what this passage gets at is a principle that's so important for us 
to put sins in our life to death. And this principle comes from an old sermon, one of the most important sermons preached in the history of the church by an old Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers in the 19th century. And the title of that sermon is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. They don't do titles like they they did back then, right? In this phrase is the key to successfully putting sin to death in your life and growing in holiness. The expulsive power of a new affection. What does that phrase mean? Do you know why dare doesn't work? Why the dare program doesn't work? Just say no. It's because if you're given only two options, either saying no or caving in and indulging the thing that entices you, if that's your only two options, do you think that would be a successful strategy in the long run? Maybe you'll resist once, maybe twice, but sooner or later, later, that temptation is just too strong. The pull is just too strong, too enticing, and we will indulge. We'll cave in. If that's your only strategy, if that's your only option to just defensively resist, you know what's a successful long-term strategy? It's not to defensively just try to resist and say no. It's saying yes to something greater, saying yes to something better. And when you indulge that, and when your heart is captured by that, then your heart is pulled less and less to that lesser thing, that inferior thing that you were drawn to before. And to give you a quick example, growing up, I was addicted to TV as a kid. Put me in front of the TV, and I was there for hours, right, after school. And so, you know, my parents, my mom especially, got so worried. It's like, this is all this kid's going to amount to. That's all this kid's going to know. He's going to be dumb, right? And every single day, my mom would just harp at me, shut off the, turn off the TV, do something else. How well do you think that worked? It was just this nagging voice. And if she would chase me away from the living room TV, I would just go upstairs into their bedroom and put on the TV at soft volume so that they wouldn't hear while my mom was cooking or something. Right? I watched TVs for hours on end. After a while, after realizing, just telling me to turn off the TV didn't work, my parents, my mom, got smarter. They realized they needed different strategies, so what did she do? She dragged me everywhere that she went. All her errands to the uh, grocery store, to the mall, and she would bait me with, you can get ice cream, you can get ice cream. Or my obsession growing up was sports cards. I'd buy another pack of cards. You'd find another Michael Jordan to add to your collection, right? And so maybe that wasn't a, necessarily a better alternative, but at least it got me out of the house. At least it got me walking, right? Not in front of the TV. And then later on, my parents pushed me towards sports. Getting involved in, you know, t-ball, baseball, soccer, golf. Golf, you're just out on the course for hours and hours on end. And what happened over the course of time? 
my heart more and more became excited, drawn to being outside, playing outside, playing golf. And when my heart was drawn to that and I was doing that, I thought about TV far less. I watched the show here and there, but I wasn't obsessed by it anymore. I wasn't glued to the screen for hours on end. You see, something better, a different alternative, captured my heart, captured my imagination, and that weakened my desire, my need for the lesser thing. That's the successful long-term strategy in battling and overcoming sin in your life. Now, you know what this passage, Galatians chapter 5, promises? It's that if, through those spiritual practices, the Spirit works in your life, He floods His powerful wind into your soul, it fans into flame good desires, right desires, spiritual desires, and your desire for and your delight in righteousness in the things of the spirit grows. You go on the offensive, not just defensively trying to resist, you go on the offensive. And you know what Galatians 5 promises? That cultivating, growing in the desires of the spirit, they are directly opposed to the desires of the flesh. So they will weaken your sin at their root. Now, if you picture trying to get rid of sin in your life, like getting rid of the weeds in your garden, you know, some of you are gardening right now, springtime into the summer, you get rid of your weeds by just running it over with your lawnmower. Not if you want to see it again the next day, or the coming week as they pop back up again. How do you get rid of your weeds? You uproot them at its root, as tedious as that is. How do you deal with your sin at its root, at the level of, desire, you proactively cultivate the desires of the Spirit. And what's promised is that they will kill, it's the weed killer, killing your sins at the root level desire, uh, level of desire. And that's how your sin gets weakened in your life and holiness grows. So instead of lust, what's cultivated through these practices is a spirit flooding into your soul, a desire for and a delight in purity. You ever think about purity as a delight, as a joy, as a thing to become drawn to, attracted to, addicted to? That's what the spirit is seeking to do. Capture your heart imagination with his purity. And as you indulge in that, as you taste that more and more, it weakens your desire, your need to lust. You say yes to a better thing, a far more satisfying thing that enables you to say no to an inferior thing. That's the strategy. That's the picture of sanctification. Now to close... I want to I be as practical as possible. Because right? you may be like, you know, this all makes sense. This all sounds great. But what do I do come tonight? What do I do come tomorrow morning when 
my anxiety creeps up again as I think about the week ahead. As my anger boils up again as I think about that thing that happened recently. What are you going to do in the moment of testing of temptation? How are you going to put all this into practice? So let me give us a, a tool that's been helpful for me because it's easy to remember. And uh, this tool is from Pastor John Piper, for those of us who um, know him. If you've read any of his books, maybe you've come across this tool. And it's, he calls it APTAT. It's not a real word. It's an acronym that he uses to explain five steps. Five steps that expresses both full dependence on God. We need to put our sin to death by the Spirit, so expresses that. And at the same time expresses it's 100% our effort, our toiling. So because this is his device and not mine, I thought it would be good just to have him explain to you uh, what APTAD is. Um, and so here's a quick video. A-P-T-A-T. A, admit, Piper, you can do nothing. John 1, 15, 11. 15, 5. You can't do anything without God. Just admit it, say it to him, say it to yourself, say it, I can't do anything. So you're walking into a situation and you say, can't do it. Can't do it. At least I can't do it with any spiritual effect. Second, A, P, pray. God help me. T, trust a specific tailor-made blood-bought promise. That's the key. Praying is key, but this is really at the heart of how God works. How the Holy Spirit, how the Word works. I'm after an explanation. What do you mean, Paul, when you say the Word is at work in them? The Word is at work in them. How does it work? And I'm saying right here that we T, trust a specific tailor-made promise. I'm going to give you three examples in a minute. A-P-T-A. Act. You've got to act. You can't lie in bed waiting for God to act for you. You've got to get up and go to work. You got a hard phone call to make? Dial the numbers with your fingers, your will, act. You got to do it. But you've just trusted. You just said you can't do it. You just cried out for help. You've just trusted a promise that he'll do it and help you do it. And now you're acting in reliance upon that coming true. Walking by faith. That's what walking by faith is. You're acting, but you're acting in faith. You're leaning on another. It's the miracle of the Christian life. For some of you, this is total foreign language. You don't even know what I'm talking about because you're not saved yet. You don't have the Holy Spirit. And the last one, T, admit, pray, trust, act. And when you're all done, thank him. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me again. I can't tell you how many times I've fallen on my face at the end of a passion in a hotel room saying, God, I don't know how I did that. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what that cost. Nobody knows what I was like when I was 15. Thank you. Typical, intense John Piper just showed the whole message instead of me being up here. Let's just quickly walk through an example. 
You know what the beauty of Aptet is? That you can do it for an hour through like a devotional time, quiet time, or you could do it in a moment. You could do it in five minutes in the heat of temptation. So let's quickly just walk through an example just as encouragement that we all can do this. Right? So let me give the example that all of us struggle with, unless you're not a human. That's loving a hard-to-love person. All of us are struggling with that <laughs> um, in some way. So what do you do in that situation? Well, A, this is the easy one. Admit. You can't in yourself do what needs to be done. You know, I don't have the ability. Being even more honest, because God already knows, I don't even have the desire to love this person right now. That's step one. Admit. Secondly, that should lead you to P, pray. God, my heart is just so hard to love this person right now. I don't even have the desire. You're soft in my heart, God. Give me even the desire to move in the right direction. I'm desperate for your help. Apart from you, I can't do this. P, pray. Which leads to T, trust. Now this is the hinge, as Piper explained. This is where it turns. Because we said the Spirit works in and through the Word in your life. Never apart from His Word. So you want the Word to work in you? You want the Spirit of God to work in you? You lay hold of His Word of truth. You trust in His promises. You trust in what He has to say. Now for me, recently, as I was struggling with a particular individual to, to, to love that person, to have a soft heart, a kind heart toward that person, I was taken to the parable of the prodigal son. There's so many passages, so many verses that could help. But for me, for whatever reason, it was the parable of the prodigal son and just thinking about how in refusing to love that person, I was being like the older brother, standing on the outside, detached, out in the cold, refusing to go in and join in on the celebration of the grace that was shown, refusing to share in the father's heart. That was the person I was being. And I had to really meditate on verses 32 and 31, uh, 31, 32 of Luke 15. It says, And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. See how gracious, see how generous, see how lavish I am to you with my mercy, and not only to you, but to the person that you're hating right now. See how wide my heart is for them? And you're refusing to come in and share in that? And I had to meditate on that. And I had to chew on that. And the Spirit of God started working in my heart to soften me, to move me in the right direction. Not all the way, right, because I'm stubborn, but at least in the right direction. So that my heart got softer, which leads to then A, act. You got to act. And that's the hardest part. What is God calling you to do? Perhaps it's 
the opportunity arises for you to talk bad about that person to someone else, to gossip. Well, you know what? Out of love, you keep your mouth shut. The Spirit helps you do that. Or instead of staying away from that person, having nothing to do with that person, you acknowledge that person's existence. Maybe that's the least you could do. Maybe that's the next step. Engage that person. Maybe actually reach out to sit down with that person and talk through things. You act, you obey. And if and when you do that and you experience the blessing that comes through obedience, what do you do? You thank God. You acknowledge that this wasn't ultimately you. It was God's grace. It was God's help. And so you give him the glory. Now, you know what? You don't need to do act-tat. Right? There's many ways you can go about putting sin to death in your life. But you know what? Let me ask you very honestly. What strategy have you been using? Do you have any strategy at all? I think tragically for a lot of us, we're fighting our sin with no strategy. We're like in the boxing ring going up against our opponent and we're being pummeled by our lust, by our anger, by our anxiety. Blow after blow after blow while our hands are tied behind our back. That's what's going on for many of us. No wonder we haven't seen sin, seen sin weakened, let alone mortified in our lives. So let me encourage us. Hopefully your heart is stirred up. You have all the resources in the gospel. This is what Jesus died and rose again for, to make your heart a dwelling place for the Spirit of God and to give you all that you need to fight back, to land blow after blow after blow upon your sin, to see it weakened, to see it even fall down. For God's glory and for your joy and peace and holiness. So Christian, let's fight the good fight by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Well, as we close, let me have a stand. Let's stand all together. Before we end our time this morning, I wanted us briefly to practice APTAP right now. Don't need to wait. Hopefully, even doing it now will kind of stir up your heart, encourage your heart to put this or some other biblical tool into practice in order to battle against, put to death the sin in your life by the Spirit of God. Right? So let me give us a few uh, minutes here to walk through Aptat. So I want you to Think about a particular sin struggle that you're dealing with right now. 
Perhaps this morning you walked in weary, even discouraged by struggling with a particular sin, whether that is lovelessness. You're slacking a lot of love toward the people in your life right now. Or it is enslaved to some desire, lust. Whatever the case is, let's quickly walk through and A, admit. Admit right here. And that's why you need to pray. You need to run to God desperately saying, God, help me. I can't do it on my own. I'm tired of rowing my boat. I want to sail. I want to catch your power. I want to see the Spirit more at work in me. And hopefully in this moment, a particular word from Scripture will come to your mind. A particular promise of God that you can lay hold of. And that's the key. That's the hinge. That you can allow to dwell more richly in your soul. That you can allow to saturate you. And so that you're more in the grasp of that word, that truth, rather than the grasp of that sinful desire or emotion. And then perhaps that would lead to what action do you need to take as you leave here, as you head into this new week? What do you need to do in obedience to experience God's blessing, to move forward in change and righteousness? Right? So let me just give you a few moments to bring a particular sin struggle before God. And let's practice active dependence on the Lord experience more and more of his life and power. Okay, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord.